It's Monday, February 10th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The next contest in the Democratic nominating process is Tuesday, as New Hampshire has its primary. The attacks are starting to heat up between Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg, with Joe Biden also joining the fray as he seeks to remain in the running after the Iowa caucus. Trevor Honeycutt, political reporter for Reuters, joins us for this and impeachment aftermath. President Trump has ousted officials who testified against him. Next, East Africa is facing a locust swarm of biblical proportions. It is the worst it has been in decades and could get 500 times worse by June. The swarm threatens farms and crops and could cause a food shortage in the area. Matt Simon, science writer at Wired, joins us for the scary science behind these huge swarms. Locusts change colors, eat toxic plants, and even grow extra muscles as they band together to wreak havoc. Finally, scientists at Northwestern University are working in collaboration with the U.S. Army to improve military uniforms to protect soldiers against chemical weapons. They are creating fabrics that could absorb and quickly neutralize deadly nerve aid. Sophia Chen, contributor at Wired, joins us for how it all works. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Is this a act of desperation on your campaign to be Obama, making this you assertion right now of Mayor Buttigieg? not a Barack Obama. Barack Obama has been a United States senator of a really large state. I'm not Barack Obama, and neither is he. Neither is anyone running for president right now. And this isn't 2008. It's 2020. Joining us now is Trevor Honeycutt, political reporter for Reuters. Thanks for joining us, Trevor. Uh, my pleasure. We are all looking forward to the New Hampshire primary on Tuesday. It's going to be the second contest for the Democrats. The Iowa debacle was just crazy for everyone. I think it's still too close to call from what I've been reading. I think we have 99% of precincts reporting and uh, Pete Buttigieg and, and Bernie Sanders are just neck and neck, 26.2% to 26.1%. So it's so close right there. But uh, we're looking forward to New Hampshire now. And everybody's kind of starting to step up the attacks on each other. Former Vice President Joe Biden is stepping up some attacks on Pete Buttigieg. And the same with Bernie Sanders stepping up some attacks on Pete Buttigieg also. What are we expecting for New Hampshire? These candidates have been campaigning for so long that I think a lot of people forgot like how serious this is. And now that we've gotten through Iowa and it's become clear that that we're really starting to separate the wheat from the chaff, that there are going to be a lot of candidates who won't be able to make it that much longer, that now they're getting a lot more serious about making sure that their final arguments to voters are as strong as possible. So New Hampshire gives us this great rematch between Sanders and Buttigieg, who did so well in Iowa. And, you know, as you said, we don't know exactly what the results were, but we know that they both did extremely well. So we've got this kind of moderate, progressive clash that we're going to see play out again in New Hampshire, and we'll see how they do. And then obviously the candidates who didn't do quite as well in Iowa, including Joe Biden and Amy Klobuchar and Elizabeth Warren, they want to make sure that their argument is clear as well. And they, they want to make sure that they can get through these first four states that have these nominating contests with some delegates and with an argument that they're electable and that they're the ones that can beat Trump. The argument for a long time has been electability and Joe Biden, who has just been a leader in a lot of the national polls since the very beginning of this. Amy Klobuchar, who pretty much in every debate scores some points, maybe not like a big memorable moment, but she's holding her own. She's doing well. What do we make of their fight right here in New Hampshire and beyond? Because, I mean, especially considering Joe Biden, you know, he said it was, Iowa was a gut punch to them. Even in New Hampshire, he's not expected to do that well also. And I know a lot of donors, a lot of politicos were just getting worried about his campaign in particular. 
Well, I think kind of one of the way to think about it is that it's really Sanders and the Sanders movement against kind of the more establishment, moderate Democratic Party. And Joe Biden has been kind of the leader of that more moderate, more establishment wing of the party. And he's been the leader in the national polls, as you say, and he's managed to kind of survive. But the fact that he did so poorly in Iowa kind of just brings into question whether or not he's the candidate who's kind of best positioned to bring together the Democratic Party and to mount a real challenge against the left wing of his party, including Sanders, but also Trump eventually in in a general election. And so as donors, kind of people who give to these campaigns and as voters think about who's best, you know, now. Now they're not so sure, you know, maybe Biden is the best option, but maybe we need to give another look to Buttigieg or Klobuchar as kind of the person we need to be bringing forward. Yeah. And specifically for Joe Biden looking into South Carolina, I mean, they're putting a lot of emphasis there, not so much in Iowa, New Hampshire, but South Carolina is very important for Joe Biden, shoring up, you know, his his African-American support there. Pete Buttigieg obviously not doing so well with the African-American support. So still have a long way to go for Joe Biden, but South Carolina figures very important to him. I can't remember the last time I heard a candidate kind of preview that they'd lose a race. But Joe Biden right. essentially did that at the debate the other night when he said, you know, I took a hit in Iowa and I'm probably going to take a hit in New Hampshire, too, because they tend to elect people from neighboring states. I mean, it's been a long time since I've heard something like that from a candidate for office before the election has even taken place. But yeah, he has described South Carolina, which is the fourth contest. So we've got Iowa, then New Hampshire, then Nevada, then uh, South Carolina, and then we open it up to a broader variety of states. But he calls South Carolina his firewall, which basically means that if things go poorly everywhere else, He still expects to win South Carolina with a good majority of support, in part because it's the state that has the largest black representation in its voter base. And that's kind of historically an area where Joe Biden has done well. But South Carolina is not guaranteed for him either, right? He's got a really tough race there. The polls have tightened up. Tom Steyer is doing really well there. And he's had a surprise leap in the polls. And and Sanders does, does pretty well there, too. Let's talk about a little bit of impeachment aftermath. Just a few days after being acquitted in the Senate, President Trump went on the offensive and ousted some of officials who testified against him during the impeachment hearings with the Democrats. That's National Security Council uh, Ukraine expert Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman and the ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Sondland. Both got taken out of their posts there and uh, just a sign that the president isn't messing around with people you know, who aren't loyal to him in his administration. Exactly. It wasn't something that the president needed to do. Lieutenant Colonel Vindman was on his way out. He was going to be leaving his post anyway at the end of the month. And Gordon Sondland reportedly was having discussions about making an exit himself as soon as the impeachment was over. But I think Trump was trying to send a a message, right, that disloyalty will not be tolerated in his administration. And, And I think that message kind of came through pretty clearly. And the president, in the meantime, for himself, he's, uh, I mean, after the State of the Union, full on into his reelection campaign, stepping up his pitch to black voters as well. The RNC is raking in a ton of cash off of impeachment fundraising efforts. So they are well on their way while the Democrats are still trying to figure it out. Yes. I mean, the the real advantage that the Republican Party has right now is that they are extremely united. This is the party of Trump. And, you know, a good majority of the people in the party and the voter base are behind him and love him and want him to be the president. Uh, so there's he doesn't have a primary battle, really. And that makes fundraising a lot easier. 
Um, and impeachment makes fundraising a lot easier because people see that, that the president is under attack from the other party and they want to support him. And so that's been a, kind of a huge fundraising boost for Republicans going into the election. And Democrats are, are not obviously not united yet. They are still trying to pick their nominee, and there's a lot that's going into that process. And so they're not unified yet. And so they're at a, a slight disadvantage because of that. Trevor Honeycutt, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Within a cubic meter of soil, something like a thousand eggs and, you know, spread across an entire landscape, you're talking about an extraordinary number of babies hatching. And when they do, they come into the world where there is a bunch of vegetation from the recent hydration. Joining us now is Matt Simon, science reporter at Wired. Thanks for joining us, Matt. And thanks for having me. Right now in East Africa, they are facing a plague of biblical proportions. You might have heard about it. There's hundreds of billions of locust swarms going all over the place. Some of them are the size of major cities. You see some of these pictures, it just looks crazy. They're saying that this is the worst outbreak in 25 years in Ethiopia. And in Kenya, this is the worst that it's been in 70 years. And the science behind how these locusts kind of transform and, and come together in these swarms and then these huge, huge swarms, it's pretty crazy how this all really works out. So Matt, tell us a little bit about this. We're talking about a specific species here called the desert locust. And locusts are actually about 20 species within the 7,000 species of grasshoppers that undergo this transformation into gregariousness, as they call it in the scientific community, when they are kind of isolated together, perhaps in a patch of vegetation, a biological switch flips in their bodies as they're crowding in there, they decide, okay, I'm going to be less of a solitary and more of a, essentially a pack animal flying in these giant formations, swarms, as you might call them. And when they do make that switch, their bodies actually transform. They go from this dull tan color to a yellow and black. And that's the signal that they're beginning to eat vegetation that's toxic and that makes themselves toxic. And that's a signal for the predators, do not eat me or you will get sick as well. Their muscles grow and that actually prepares them for the journeys that they're about to undertake. And what happened in this particular situation where you had a couple of cyclones hit the same spot in the deserts of Oman and that grew a bunch of vegetation. You had these populations breeding in those vegetation in the desert and then all taking off in search of new vegetation elsewhere. That means going south into East Africa, north into Iran, and really just exploding their numbers as these sequential cyclones come through to give them the perfect conditions, not only for breeding, but for having a lot of vegetation to fuel these swarms. They can move something like 90 miles in a day, which is pretty insane considering their size. It's pretty fascinating to think that when they're solitary, like a dull brown color, and then once they start gathering up in these larger swarms, they just completely transform. It's like there's no need to hide anymore. We're going to be out here. We're going to change our colors so the predators think we're toxic. And the muscle growth and the transformation so they can make these long kind of migrations. But why do they gather in such huge, huge numbers? I know a lot of it has to do with breeding and all that. And they like moist soil to put their eggs in and all. But how does it get to such crazy numbers where they're in the billions and billions of locusts? It really is just a matter of condition. It's a very hardy desert species. It can go many weeks without water, but it does, of course, need water from time to time. When these cyclones come through and dump a bunch of water on the desert, the female locusts will actually prod the soil with their abdomens to check 
it's moisture. When they find that it's okay, they lay their eggs that hatch in about two weeks' time. It needs to stay moist that whole time or the eggs will uh, desiccate and be destroyed. But what you can end up happening is getting within a cubic meter of soil something like a thousand eggs and you know spread across an entire landscape you're talking about an extraordinary number of babies hatching and when they do they come into the world where there is a bunch of vegetation from the recent hydration that they then burn through and you know as they're crowding around they're undergoing the switch to gregariousness and when they get through all that vegetation they say okay well we are moving along now and they do so on mass yeah and then that's where the big problem comes in because they start ruining crops they love grains they load up on carbohydrates so they can make these long trips and really that's where they're announcing it's emergency outbreaks happening there in Africa and, and there's food insecurity because of things like that when they start eating all the crops and settling in on farms i mean they're destroying potential food for people at that point they're after carbohydrates, much less so than protein. Actually, some researchers did some really interesting work actually feeding these locusts high protein or low protein diets or high carbohydrates or low carbohydrate diets and found that they actually grew less when they had low carbohydrate diets. So when we're talking about carbohydrates and high carbohydrate diets, we're, of course, talking about grains um, that they're finding right now in East Africa and really decimating not only the crops on the field, but all the stuff in storage. And we could lead to a good amount of food shortages in East Africa, especially considering that this is probably the very beginnings of this swarm. They may increase in the numbers by 500 times by June, oh again, because more rains are going to come through and give them these breeding grounds. And they have so much vegetation to tear through. And unfortunately, a lot of that is what we humans are growing for food. And the only way to really get it under control is using pesticides, right? I was reading that in Kenya, they have about five planes that are spraying the area. And that's really all the only recourse that they have. One of the researchers I spoke to about this really compared it to the outbreak of wildfire. So the idea is if you have a small fire breaking out, you stamp it out immediately and you don't get a larger one. Typically what these monitoring networks throughout East Africa, North Africa and India are doing is, you know, they're people on the ground actually driving around in four by fours looking for any signs of locusts because if they can catch an outbreak early, they spray them with the pesticides and kill them off before it gets out of control. The issue being with the, the pesticide that it's dangerous. It's very effective, but you have to have trained professionals doing this. So it's not like folks on a farm can have their own supply of pesticides. When these outbreaks start to begin, they can forecast where these locusts might start to move. And in this monitoring network, they'll mobilize. They'll say to Kenya, OK, this is going to be in your doorstep in a couple of weeks or a couple of months. You need to mobilize. And Kenya will do things like pull the pesticides out of central repositories and, and spread it throughout the country to be used at will. So it's a really robust network, and it's usually very good at catching this. But this was in breaking out in such an isolated part of the deserts of Oman that nobody saw it coming before it got too late. It just really got out of control before they could start using the pesticides with very much effectiveness. Matt Simon, science reporter at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. And thanks for having me. The chemical coating can actually neutralize or break down nerve agents such as VX and GD just upon contact within minutes. Joining us now is Sophia Chen, contributor to Wired. Thanks for joining us, Sophia. Thanks for having me. We're going to be talking about something pretty interesting that the U.S. Army is working on in collaboration with Northwestern University. There's a project they're working on to create fabrics that can rapidly neutralize 
some of the deadliest poisons that we know, nerve agents. And the effort ultimately is to put this in our soldiers' uniforms. So if something crazy happens, the uniform can absorb and neutralize these nerve agents. Sophia, tell us about what they're working on. So this lab based in Northwestern University, led by Omar Farha, they made these fabrics that are coated in this chemical coating. And the chemical coating can actually neutralize or break down nerve agents such as VX and GD just upon contact within minutes. Just for people that don't know too much about it, this one VX, I mean, if if people heard the reports of Kim Jong-nam, this is the half-brother of North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, He was assassinated in an airport by two women who smeared some of that stuff on his face. He died within two hours of that. So they're looking to bring some more protection to our soldiers out in the field. How does this all work? How do they neutralize these nerve agents? So the nerve agents actually break down when you put them in water. They just break down really slowly. And so if you think about like a soldier's uniform, the soldier's uniform is dry. And so they need to figure out a way to first speed up this breakdown process in water and also make it happen on dry fabric because the soldiers are not going to be wearing wet clothing. Right, exactly. So um, <laughs> so they use this molecule called MOF-808. And this molecule basically collects water from the air. So basically the shape of this molecule really makes water want to stick to it. And so if you're in at least 30% humidity, these molecules will collect enough water in order to do this chemical reaction where they break down the nerve agents. And then inside the molecule, there's also a catalyst. In this case, it's a zirconium atom and it speeds up this process. So like normally, if you put nerve agents in water, they might break down over the course of days. And when you have this catalyst, it can make it happen on the order of minutes. That's crazy to think that being a dry fabric, you could just be in 30% humidity and the protection that you have on can start neutralizing this stuff. So how far have they gotten with all of this? I mean, I know they've done some testing and some try to do some real world tests with things that soldiers might have on them, dirt and, and sweat and all this stuff. How how's, have some of these tests gone? They have figured out how to attach these molecules to cotton fabric. And so they've tested the cotton fabric. They've actually put like artificial sweat and diesel and like all these sorts of like contaminants, like things that might actually get on a soldier's uniform in battlefield conditions and tested how well does this chemical reaction still occur. And they found that it works pretty well with these contaminants. And actually it works better when you have sweaty fabric because the sweat has this extra water. Obviously, the the guy gets the, a little bit easier. It's going to work. And now next steps for this, obviously applying it to the fabrics and getting it into uniforms. They're trying to work on the wearability. They don't know if this coating could flake off, things like that. So it's just more testing. But they hope to get some of this stuff ready in the next few years so they can start applying it to soldiers' uniforms. Yeah. So now that they know that this works in a laboratory setting on an actual fabric, now they have to figure out how to make this into clothing. Sophia Chen, contributor to Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks a lot for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this 
was your daily dive.